The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Welcome to today's show. Today I'd like to welcome Pauline Scanlon, who is with us here today. Pauline Scanlon is a vocalist and songwriter who galvanized the Irish music scene with the stunning debut album Red Colour Sun, produced by John Reynolds over 10 years ago. Scanlon is capable of making the oldest ballads sound immediate and fresh while granting new material a timeless resonance. As featured vocalist with the Sharon Shannon Band for three years as a solo artist and as a member of vocal duo Lumiere, Scanlon has entranced audiences the world over with a distinctly delicate intensity. Pauline Scanlon also brought her unmistakable vocal style to her second compass release, Push, produced by former Lunasa guitarist Dunn Hennessy and recorded at the Compass Soundstage in Nashville. As a vocalist, Pauline has performed and recorded with a wide range of artists including Damien Dempsey, Sinead O'Connor, Ellen O'Shannon, Karen Casey, Andrea Core, John Spillane and Seamus Begley. Pauline has been involved with a wide range of collaborative singing projects including the Irish Sea Sessions, A Storm McCree and Homeward Bound, all projects involving the leading exponents of Irish song. Pauline has just begun to record her third solo album this year. She is reunited with her longtime collaborator and producer John Reynolds on what promises to be an emotionally charged album of song, both traditional and otherwise. Welcome to the show, Pauline. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're welcome, Pauline. So, Pauline, you're in Headford right now. I'm in Headford, County Galway. Well, actually, I'm actually in County Mayo. I'm right about 10 foot into Mayo, but I don't broadcast that fact. I kind of try and keep that to myself. Yeah, because that's the thing of like, when you're in Headford and you're down, you know, sometimes with Kong and Shrewl and all these places, you're you're stepping over the boundaries of both of them, aren't you? You're stepping into the Badlands either way. <laughs> <laughs> and coming from Kerry, from West Kerry, it's a funny thing for me because I come from very far West Kerry on the Dingle Peninsula, like, so it's just one road east and one road west. So this whole kind of warren of roads and networks and county bounds is a kind of a new experience. For yeah, me. and it's it's funny, but like obviously down around Headford, Shrewl, it's beautiful down there. And you're, you know, as you said, you're heading, once you're heading towards Kong and, you know, Ernamona, it's just beautiful down there, isn't it? Oh, it's gorgeous. Absolutely. And I, I my husband and I just converted an old transit van to camper. And so we had our maiden voyage in it this week and we went up far west Connemara, out as far as Litchermullen and uh, then back around to Clifton and back in. And so there's like really amazing uh, places right close by you for exploration. So it's a, it's a lovely and it's lovely. My husband is from Belfast and I'm from Dingle. So we had been doing a big drive between our two families. So it's nice to be a Lauren the Porca, as you could say now. Lauren the Porca. That's, re- that's really cool. Um, you know, it's funny about Galway because a lot of Galway is very flat. You know, it's very flat country. And mm-hmm. But then as you're heading towards Mayo and obviously out towards Connemara, there's some mountains and beautiful mountains out there. So people can be misled a little bit and you kind of have to say to them, no, no, you need to go out further. Go out further. Yeah, yeah, keep, keep going. going. You'll find it. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if there, sometimes I remember people saying to me, oh, there's not, it's very, there's, it's not very hilly or mountainy around here. And I'd say, no, no, you have to go out further, like out along the coast or go, to, yeah. go towards Mayo and places, you know. 
Um, yeah, for sure. The, in like that road from from Galway to Tume, the N17, the famous N17, it's very flat, you know, and you'd be misled. Yeah. You'd be misled. So, so you like you were, but you were born in Dingle, weren't you? Yeah, well, I was actually born in the Rotunda in Dublin, but both my parents are from West Kerry, and all my grandparents, bar one, I've one from Limerick. So I'm, and I, they brought me back to West Kerry when I was a couple of months old. So that's that's where all belonging to me are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, like everybody, well, I I assume a lot of people in Ireland and abroad have been to Dingle, and you know, for all its charm and everything, and fungi and the whole lot. But yeah. what was it like for you growing up in Dingle? Was it a very quiet place when you were younger growing up or was it always full of tourists? Well, it has changed and the tourism, I think, has has changed quite a lot. When I grew up, so I was born in 1979 and so I grew up in Dingle in the 80s, really, as a child. And it was there was always visitors, I, I suppose. It has kind of evolved to tourism as a kind of um, a business I guess more now but growing up it was the kind of place that the world came to us so there was lots of visitors and they were it was visitors that were looking for scenery definitely the outdoors but definitely language and culture played a huge part in it and yeah it was harder to get to that time like if you were to fly into Dublin we'll say and drive down to Dingle it probably took eight hours because you had to stop in every hole in the hedge on the way and all the way down through so it was like it was very Irguta and very um out of the way very hard to get to so it meant that the people that did come really had you know had reasons and that kind of thing and West Kerry is a place that has a lot of kind of interesting cultural practices and events like the ran and just different things and old pubs and that kind of thing and obviously traditional music and language and and that kind of thing so you had a very kind of a cultured visitor I suppose but that has kind of evolved quite a bit more and now we do definitely get more mass tourism which has its drawbacks I question the sustainability of a lot of it um but it also means that during all of the recessions and that you know we definitely suffered less from immigration there was always more jobs um but we do have fishing and farming as industries as well so you know it's a kind of a double-edged sword i personally find the mass tourism difficult to live beside um just on very practical levels uh, you know some of the capitalist elements of it don't sit all that well with me but I still I also see the benefits in terms of people making a living um how the money and how the opportunity is distributed is you know yeah that's the thing and I suppose that has really been brought to the forefront with the whole disappearance of fungi and because people kind of go oh well fungi himself was an industry and once he disappeared it meant those, you know, tour guides and fishermen who were tour guides and bringing people out in boats. It kind of killed a little, a bit of their livelihood or their income. But as you said there, that capitalism can creep into people without them even knowing it. Because what can happen is people can say, oh, I'd never do that. But then once they can make a good living, it's kind of hard to escape it, isn't it? It is. Yeah. But basically, that's it in a nutshell. It is hard to escape it. And look, I would never you know, question anybody wanting to earn a crust or make a living. And, and I mean, even fungi, I've never made any money off fungi myself personally, I, you know, but <laughs> he, he was an awful lot more like where my house is, uh, my home place where my father lives now is up 
past the lighthouse in Dingle. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's right up on the top of yes, yes, yes. the cliff, kind of. And so from our uh, patio in the morning, we'd be like, you know, the way sound travels over water. Like I'd frequently wake up and I could hear him splashing and hitting the water. And my grandmother's house was right on the walk out to the little beach of Slodine. So we were swimming with him and kind of interacting with Fungi from a very young age. And he was, you know, he was there 38 years and I'm 42. So I don't really remember a time when he wasn't wow. there. Wow. So he was almost like a communal pet as much as he was uh, an industry for some people. And I mean, lots of people come to Dingle and they never go and see Fungi as well. Like, you know, I mean, I sometimes I think the economic role that he has played is overplayed. Um, you know, but it, it was a remarkable thing. And I'd go out to see him a couple of times a year, all my life on boats or pals have ribs and punts and all sorts of things. And no matter how many times you'd see him, it was every, every time was magic. Like the first time he was just a really beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous creature. And we were very lucky to have him. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny there, but just. You know, when you said you never made any money off him, if he ever comes back, you can record a duet with him or an album. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the beautiful sounds of Pauline Scanlon and Fungi. Maybe you'll have to sing about. I'm sure it has been attempted. There have been some some really like interesting people <laughs> have come to Dingle to interact with Fungi, and I think many things have been attempted. So it wouldn't be surprised me if I wasn't the yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, because. Like you see it in other parts of the world, you know, where dolphin sounds or whale sounds. So I'm sure people have said, well, hold on, I could record all of those sounds and make an album. I'm sure. You know? Fungi in Irish. I'm sure it's probably. Fungi, maybe, maybe he went looking to get some copyright claim or to get his money back. Maybe that's where he's gone now. And more power to, to him if you know? he has. And more power, yeah. So tell us, like obviously growing up in Dingle, you know, um, before, I, I know you probably were into music from a very early age, but did you have other things you were into, other hobbies or sport or kind of other crafts or things you liked? Sport, I suppose. From a, I come from a big GA family. Um, so sport, football and that kind of thing when I was younger. Um, but not really, I took, like, not to any great, I mean, I played sports in school and played a bit of football and a bit of basketball and that kind of thing. But, um, not really, no. Like I started singing for money, like at when I was about fifteen, and you know, up until that point, I was I went to boarding school and then I was in school. So, like outside of kind of school hobbies and that kind of thing, I didn't really. It was kind of music from a really early age, really. So your parents are from Dingle, so that means the Irish language was always in your family. Yeah, more on my on my dad's side. And then like we didn't speak Irish at home in the house to each other because my mother didn't really have Irish. But my dad is lovely Irish. And then his side of the family would have would have had plenty Irish. But all my schooling was in Irish and it's always kind of around you. So I think even people who are from Dingle, like there's kind of a so the Gaeltacht really in terms of the most people who speak Irish are west of Dingle. Um, so Dingle being kind of the frontier or the entry point into the Gaeltacht. So a lot of people from Dingle wouldn't necessarily have the same level of Irish as somebody from Dunquin. That's just the reality of it. But you'd, still, everybody would be would have a very reasonable level of Irish and great understanding of it. But um, I went to Clóistida, which is an all Irish language boarding school. And I suppose I've kind of had occasion through my work and stuff to use it more than other people. But my Irish is, you know, Racism to Max, it's good Irish, but it's I'm not like 
you know, like other people have the absolute, it's their first language. It's not mine. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I, um, a few podcasts ago, I had a Nigerian girl on, Ola Majigadumi, and she is a fluent Irish speaker. And it's amazing the work she's doing for the Irish language. And, you know, so it's really, it, it, for, for me, when I brought her on, I thought this is a nice twist because you, you're sometimes Irish people don't value the language enough. But when immigrants come into the country, sometimes they grow up and they're involved in the language and they embrace it so much more, you know. And um, I think it's it's one of those things I always look back on. You know, I don't speak Irish at all. And I always look back on and I always say, you know, it's it's partly my own fault, but it was with the school system. And I think if you lived in the right areas, it was just a natural thing. But if you lived in the non-Gaeltic areas, you could only rely on school. And sometimes that wasn't enough. Yeah. I mean, they say, don't they, like the total immersion is kind of the way to go to learn Irish. But I mean, a lot of the Irish language and I mean, in, I guess the education of the entire country outside of Gaeltic areas in terms of the Irish language falls at the door of the Department of Education. And I kind of argue that that's I'm kind of agreeing with you that that's not enough. And there's a lot of kind of. I suppose people have misgivings about how it was taught, but I don't particularly um, remember enjoying maths or geography <laughs> either, but I probably, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, you know, but I, I think it's improving. And I think younger people definitely like Irish is a quite kind of a loaded thing. I think people, there's a lot of shame attached to it and people are ashamed at the level of Irish that they have. Even I am like, and I have relatively good Irish, but you know, that it's not good enough and then they're embarrassed and afraid to speak it. And then you have people who who are encouraging and people who I think largely unintentionally can be very discouraging, you know, if you have people correcting you and that kind of thing, you know, about, about grammar and stuff. It would be rude, considered rude in English, but yet people still think it's okay to do it in Irish. Yeah, and, you know, even me living in Spain here, people say to you, oh, you're from Ireland and do you speak Irish? And... I'm like, OK, so you have to go into the speech about English colonialism and yeah. and it's like I'm so sick of it now because you're kind of like in your head, you're trying to find the reasons you don't speak Irish. And then you're thinking it's probably it's my own fault. I was just lazy or or, you know, you're trying to find reasons why you yeah. don't do it. And to be honest, like, I don't know myself. Is it my fault? Is it the <laughs> government's fault? I don't know, because but I just know that. You know, it's one of these things that, as you said, so many Irish people have that shame of not yeah. being able to speak their, their own language. And when you're in the country and you say it to somebody else, you know, you have a laugh. But when you're in another country, you kind of feel more ashamed because people are like, you can't speak your own language. It's kind of weird, you know. Yeah, no, it is definitely weird. And it's it's complex. Yes. It's very complex and complicated. And we do have colonialism to thank for that, amongst other things. <laughs> here's a here's a question, obviously, because you worked with John Spillane in the last few months or the last year and his latest album. When you work with John, because John loves the, the Oscalga, do you speak with John in Irish when you're working together or do you speak in English? Yeah, a lot of Irish and a lot of English, both. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, we do speak a lot of Irish together, actually, John and I. Um, so, yeah, both. And um, John is a communicator, you know, so sometimes you, you just kind of fall in and out of. But I'd have that with a lot of people, you know, I'd have that with a lot of people in my life where I'd, I'd speak both. Brilliant. Yeah, because I was going to say, obviously, 
you know, because you're kind of your singing style goes across different specters and, you know, you're sometimes more traditional, sometimes more ambient. And so I'm sure some characters you work with, they're fluent Irish speakers and traditional singers and everything. So you probably have that where you could be in the studio one day with an artist or a singer and they're speaking fluent Irish and the next day you're with somebody else, you know? Yeah, it's, that's exactly it. It's a very fluid thing. And I personally find that uh, kind of refreshing and uh, even musically in, in those things just to be a bit fluid and a bit not boxed into any one thing I, I think that's just so so tell us about your family like brothers and sisters honey I have one younger brother uh Brian he's two years younger than me we're great old mates and then obviously two parents my mother passed away and my father lives down in Dingle yeah and you know right now obviously with everything that happened with the Covid you know has it been a difficult time seeing family and going back and over yeah, it has. Like, I mean, I because because Eamon and I and I have a little girl, a daughter, Kitty, um, because we don't have family around us here, even the meeting your relative for a walk or that none of that is an option for us. I'm sure you feel the same. You probably don't have too much family around you over there. Either. I haven't been home since the last time I was home was February of 2020. And, and I was home on my own. And my wife and kids haven't been back to Ireland since I think August of 2019. So time's going by very fast now, you know? It is, isn't it? And like, there's there's stuff I think for grandparents, you know, I just see my dad whose reason for living is my daughter Kitty. They are absolutely best friends and they absolutely love each other so much. And he's down on the ground rolling around with her and pulling and dragging and all that crap. And I know how much he feels he's missed out. And it's funny, like, as the months go on and I, like he was here for Christmas. All right. Um, but we'd be very tight and we'd see a lot of each other like ordinarily. Um, I can see him getting a bit down in the mouth about it. He's just a bit down, but um, hopefully now we're kind of, he's had a vaccine and uh, my husband and Eamon and I have had a vaccine um, as well. So, um, you know, that looks like it might be on the cards sooner rather than later, which is really great. And we will just, we're dying for a babysitter. And I <laughs> How old is Kitty? <laughs> She's four. She'll be five in November. Yeah. Has she stepped into the realm of singing yet? Like, is she humming a few tunes? She is, you know, and she can sing in, she can sing in tune beautifully. Like, and she does. And I mean, she loves, to, weirdly, I mean, not weirdly at all. I totally understand it, but she loves Dolly Parton. She's really into Dolly Parton. Yeah. And Billie Eilish as well at the moment. Um, but I don't want to kind of push her, you know, I'd hate, I like the worst thing would be to make it seem like a chore in any way or something that I was pushing on her. So we'll see, see how it, because it's a lonely old road sometimes, the music, you know, yourself. <laughs> ah, yeah. Like the thing about, the thing about it is, you know, people are, you know, um, I saw a funny meme yesterday and it was somebody saying, oh, you're, you're still doing the music, yeah. you know. And <laughs> I know. And you want it. It's like, uh, I, who was saying it to me lately? I can't remember. It was somebody was saying, you know, when you're when you're doing it and you're successful, I mean, it's brilliant. But when you have bad moments or nothing's happening, people are kind of looking like, and you, you wouldn't get another job. But they wouldn't <laughs> say it in that direct way. They kind but of their say face it. says yeah, it. Yeah, their face says it. So, so I think for par- parents who are musicians, they're kind of looking at their kids going, geez, I don't know, do I want that life for them? Or is it like... I'd love them to sing, but get paid first. <laughs> sing and get paid for it, absolutely. And you'd want them to take the joy in it as well before you ever kind of think. And I just think that because it's my job and when I say I'm going out to work, 
you know, that's what it is. Um, so you'd want to like, you know, that if she decided to take to it, that she would just take real joy and enjoyment from it. And that would be the first thing, whatever about doing anything with it after that. I think the joy and the enjoyment of it is something that I guess if you're a musician for a long time, you don't always no, get, no. you know, I mean, you do definitely get it, but there are, you know, there's a, a lot of graft in it too. So when, when you, with Tony Small, you started singing when you were, well, you, you started kind of singing, performing when you were 13 or 14. So did you, besides the singing, like in your local neighborhood there, you yeah. were mentioning babysitter. Did you have other jobs or did you have other ways of making money besides music? I did. Yeah. Up until I was about 20, I suppose, 19 or 20. Um, I did a bit of waitressing and firework, worked in a clothes shop. And then I went traveling for a while. I was out in Australia and I wasn't doing a whole pile of singing there. I was mainly kind of waitressing and arsing around really. Um, so I, I always had that. And then when I was, 19 or 20 uh, I was working at the crane bar in Galway and that was the last job 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 that I had um maybe 20 yeah about 20 or something like that and then I just started playing music I joined Sharon Shannon's touring band and I haven't really done anything else I mean when I say I haven't really I haven't done anything else well, yeah. you've done a lot but you haven't gone down the regular work work route we'll say yeah, no, but yeah, but I've just applied actually to do a degree in NUIG. Uh, this hopefully I get my place. I'll be waiting to see, but I just filled out the CAO um to go and do something because I would like to use my brain in other ways. Yeah, well, I I think you know it's funny. My mom is like seventy three now, but when my dad died, like maybe fifteen, sixteen years ago, my mom was kind of like a housewife, and and then she was like sixty something or you know sixty, I think. I, but she decided to go back to university and went Brilliant. to NUIG and was the oldest in the class. And she did really well. So, I mean, I always say to people, it's never you're never too old to do anything. Isn't that just so inspiring? And did she really enjoy it? She loved it. And it was, you know, and she she it was amazing because she had moments and she had times in the class where she'd be getting top marks above 19 and 20 and 25 year olds because she was more into it than they were. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is an element of that, isn't there, that if you're a grown woman and you want to go back and study something that you're, you'd you be pretty sure that's what you wanted to do. It's not like something that you go and, you know, flippantly do. Yeah, because I think that when we're when we're 18, 19, 20 and even, you know, the next few years, we're never quite sure what we want to do and we're only figuring it out. And, yeah. and the thing about it is sometimes you go to university and then it's like, what am I doing here? Or do I really want to do this? You're more interested in the crack and meeting people and, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I dropped out of school when I was 15. I didn't even finish school. So I um for me, like I was just still had that kind of almost siege mentality of the school dropout, you know, going, oh, God, this isn't for me. And, you know, I mean, people were just laughing at me when I say that, that education is for everyone. But it remains to be seen anyway, because I still haven't crossed the doors of the place, but I hope to. Yeah, I mean, that that's another kind of a skill that's waiting to be discovered. And you'll probably find, you know, that you really take to it and you'll find you'll add another notch to your belt. So I think it's a great thing, you know. So listen, Pauline, when, so let's go back to, let's say, you know, when you were 12, 13 and you met Tony Small. Tell us about that and how that kind of lit the fire for you. Well, I was always, when I, when I, I went to school into junior infants when I was four years old, the same as everybody else. And there was a nun in there, sister to sales. She actually only passed away a couple of weeks ago. 
And I used to sing and my dad used to drive me into school every morning and we'd be singing away in the van and singing this song and singing that song. So I'd load the songs that I just learned from him, nothing particularly cultured or anything like that. They were queer old songs just that everybody had. Grace just a lovely songs like. But um so she kind of twigged that and she used to bring me in and around to the older classes and I I used to be and sometimes she'd put like a girl from sixth class to bring me up to the secondary school, like up to the convent and I'd go in singing songs for them and I kind of knew then at that really early age okay this is something that I can do and you know and I just always did it and so I used to be singing around at home and I was mad for music not so much like I'd listen to a lot of music but mainly the act of singing the verb of singing the partaking in the in the action so I'd be always singing around the house and it really drove my family mad I think like particularly my brother he'd be like shut up fuck up you know I just just never stop like yeah and then um and I weirdly I don't really do that anymore but um anyway my mother was friends with Tony Small Tony lived down in Dingle for years and years and he was coming and going kind of from Dingle since the 70s and he'd come for a few years and then he'd be gone and then he'd come back and he'd be gone and I he was I just always knew him from when I was seven eight nine years of age and they were friends and he'd be drinking tea in the house and then my mother just said to him when I was about 13, 14, maybe she said, you know, Pauline is mad for singing. Would you teach her a few songs? So I think out of politeness, he said, of course I would, because he was always in around the house. And I, he came to the house then and he started asking me questions. And then he just literally over the course of, I'd say Tony's probably dead eight, seven or eight years now, there wasn't like a week that went by that we wouldn't be in touch like we were very very tight and very close friends but in particularly from like 14 till I was maybe 30 um in that time and he very accelerated in the beginning he just taught me loads of songs and I really he was a songwriter as well but what really interested me in what Tony taught me was about the old songs and the families of songs and how they related and how they traveled over to Appalachia and how the, you know, the child ballads in England were related to the Irish language songs here. And just that kind of encyclopedic knowledge of folk song just always, always interested me because I find fierce solidarity in old songs because they're the enduring questions of humanity and human emotion and experience the reason these songs survive so long in the oral tradition is because they remained relevant to people. And I find fierce solidarity and kind of comfort in that and interest. And I mean, I'm working on a project at the moment, particularly about women's songs. And I, I've taken the life of my mother, broke it down into 10 stages and attached traditional songs because to her life, because I feel that even though they are enduring there's large parts of the female experience that are excluded because most of the collectors were male. So his story is his story. And so a lot of the songs that were relevant to women's lives would have been deemed not of interest to really. So there's a lot of songs about war. There's a lot of songs about working. There's a lot of songs about immigration, but there's no songs. The only songs for children are lullabies, but there's very little about the female experience that has endured so I'm kind of reclaiming and digging around for some of that stuff but that's that's the where how Tony set me on the road was just that kind of you know it's funny actually because um I recently talked to Sean Keane you know and Mm -hmm. he was talking about how his mother influenced his you know his singing and everything 
And what's really interesting for me is that what you say there, a lot of those songs were male driven. You know, they were centered on the male character, the male persona. But a lot of the times they were carried on by women. A lot of the times they were carried on by women. Yeah. 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 You had women singing around the fire and singing while they were working. And then, as he said, people used to come to their house and share songs and have different versions. And, you know, it's funny because you hear sometimes people talking about uh, um, Appalachian songs and the, the the Irish songs and, you know, Cajun songs and the, the similarities and the familiar themes running through them. But what re- it's, what's really interesting is that you can hear a song that's from Ireland and a, and a melody from, you know, you know, America or Canada, and they're very similar. But that used to also happen in Ireland, too, because you had songs from Cork and then songs from the north of Ireland and Galway and Dublin with different words and everything in them. So it didn't. Yeah. 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 And a line from here and a and a phrase and even a turn of melody like I was learning Bodenstown Churchyard. Um, during the week there uh, for something about the song about Wolf Tone, you know, written at the Thomas Davis song. And um, it's got a line in the middle of it that's just like the grain more hair. But they're, they're completely unrelated. And really, once you get to know the melodies, they're quite different. But that, that one twist in the middle of it, you're like, wow, like, that just kind of blows my mind. I just, I just love, was that a decision by someone or was it an evolution or, I mean, we, we, we don't know. Yeah, and, and it can take the song somewhere else as well. Yeah, totally. You know, you know, like that one line can change things. So it is really interesting when you look back at the history of, of you know, Irish song and international Celtic songs. And, but I, I do agree that I, I think probably in Irish folklore and in Irish musical history, you, the women, in Irish, you know, in the Irish folklore, they don't get enough praise for carrying the songs on and for even, for even you know, being an integral part of it because, again, it's just something we're really discovering more in the last 50 years that everything's based on the male persona, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of it is. And then if you are, if there, if there is elements of the female experience in it, she's almost always wife of, daughter of, and in some way attached to a male so that, female agency you know or Ireland she's a beautiful woman or she's held up as the the spare van you know and it's like unrealistic it's not really the human ordinary everyday experience of women and I think that's really what I want to to you know and not necessarily ordinary but the the whole range of more lahan of experiences that women have for good and for bad so that's kind of where and why I'm doing this project because I'm a raging radical feminist who won't shut up about it ever. <laughs> you know, nowadays, I suppose that the whole, you know, just when you mentioned the word feminism, feminism is being challenged by women, by men, by everything now, because you have womenism, feminism, equality. So it's good to take things from history to, re- to you know, to reference them against things that are happening right now. Absolutely. Be- it's, yeah. Because the w- women were always strong. It's just that their stories always didn't get told. Yeah, yeah. And women have had, have had to be strong. I mean, there's a, report, there's a report that I've been privy to recently. Today, it's coming out tomorrow, actually, um, from the Why Not Her Collective. And it's an overview of the last 20 years of the charts and the homegrown Irish acts in Ireland. And it is staggering. It's literally the the airplay that women have had over the last 20 years, which is the length of time really that I've been out doing what I'm, what I'm doing. And you're looking at roughly 
across the board, we're getting about 10% of that action. That's crazy because when you, when you look back at the charts, like on a collective level in the sense that Irish music hasn't been played that much on Irish radio, even on local radio to this yeah. day. Ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, artists are fighting for, for local stations to play their music. And even though people think, oh, but it's a local radio, but they're still commercial. And the problem is yeah. they have a quota. And unfortunately, whether it be male or female, people aren't being played. But then when you put it between the male and female thing, the male percentage of bands or artists is much higher. Now, I think it's ch- it's much. changing, <laughs> but I don't know how quickly. And um, when when the I can't what was the name of that song uh, the, where the, all the women got together? Dreams, Irish Women in Harmony. Yeah, the Dreams one, yeah, which was a lovely version, really good. And, I mean, that kind of highlights it a little bit, but unfortunately, sometimes nowadays, something can be viral and then can just go away, can't it? And then just go away. And, like, what what impact did that really have? And in terms of what did it generate and what was the revenue from it? And so whilst you have, in some instances, you have visibility of some women, but you look at what the spins and the plays that they get and what they earn then there's still a a massive disparity there and you know I mean women are very good at at clubbing together and fighting to even the scales at the very least um, tip them a little bit more in our favor but men are going to have to do it as well otherwise it's not going to change no and and now what I think the good thing about the modern man, if that's a funny term, is that I think modern males are kind of realizing the, you know, disparity between male and female characters in all walks of life. And they're they're kind of saying, well, okay, we don't know what to do, but we but the first thing we have to do is recognize that it was there. And the second thing we have to do is see how we can change it and learn as we go along. Because you know, this is the thing. We have to have respect for everybody, creed, color, whatever. And uh, the the point is that people have to look at it and say, okay, we don't know what, wh- how, what do we do? Uh, and then someone said, well, look, okay, nobody knows how to do it or how to change it, but here's steps we can take. And we learn as we go along. You're not going to fix it overnight, but it's good that it's starting to kind of impact men now, I think. Yeah, and it's great as well that, like, we're having this conversation and people will hear it, you know. And so, like, that is a really proactive thing. Like, that's an extraordinarily proactive thing because, you know, I think dialogue and hearing how reasonable and how achievable it really actually is, you know, and there'll be a million reasons like you have the local radio station saying, oh, we just we're playing what our listeners want to hear. And you're saying you're really dictating what they want to hear, you know, like which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And in in many instances, you know, and I think the amount of, for instance, this conversation, you know, like the amount of male voices that you hear on the radio or in the podcast world all the time. It's so even to give the space over and the platform over and the microphone over so that these issues can be played out and spoken about is a really powerful activism. You know, that is that is it. That's it working and in, in motion and allowing for and giving the space over for the conversations and the points to be made. Um, I think that's really, really effective. And- yeah, and, and like for me, you know, I'm, I'm only doing this podcast six months and we've had some great female guests on. And, you know, I, I, for me, when I'm looking for guests, 
sometimes I find some of the more interesting characters can be the women because they're, it, it's not like, you know, they're strong feminists and they're out to prove a point. It's not like that. It's that they're, they're very ambitious and they're saying, well, okay, we, we want a piece of the pie now. And their story can be really interesting. So for me, I'm like, it's one thing I always think about. I'm thinking, you know, uh, you know, I don't want, I never want to have this percentage of, I'm, I'm not, it's always about the guest. If the guest is interesting, but for me, why not have more women than men? Why not have more? It doesn't matter. The point is it's about the guest, but it shouldn't be, I think in television and media too many times, they, they say, oh, well, this guy has a bigger following or he's this or he's that. And then he gets on the air and it keeps going. It's like a, a snowball effect. Yeah, it's a perpetual cycle of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. I was going to say to you there, actually, um, that it's funny when you when you look at the charts as well and look at the radio stations. The one big crime that I think radio stations in general do is that they don't they should play local artists and play like, you know, let's say, for example, in Galway, they should play Galway artists and then let the people decide. But what's happening yeah. is a lot of them, you have all these programmers on radio stations, whether it be Radio 1, RTE, all these, and they make the decision before the people even hear it. So they, they say, Yeah, this is exactly it. So how do you know what they want if you're not giving them all the options? So yeah. I think I think sometimes they hear amazing songs and then they go, yeah, but will the demographic like that? Do you think that'll work? Yeah, we decide no, so that's it, yeah. So, like, you know, it, it would be great if they if they said, you know, let's put this music on and see how the people react. And if the people like it, we play it a couple of times a week. If the people like it, then we keep playing it. But unfortunately, they try to appease artists and the people by having these hour or two hour long Irish music shows. You know, so they play, for example, you know, 100, 150 hours of chart music and then they put on a show on a Sunday. And it's great. Those shows are great. Don't get me wrong. But it's niched and it's pigeonholed and it's othered, you Just know, from everything the, else. It's so like really... giving the crumbs. You know, it's like you saying, I want a piece of the apple pie. And they go, well, yeah, we can't give you a full piece. But listen, here's a crumb and it'll keep everybody happy. And then people, you know, hear a song on, for example, a great radio station now is Lock Ray Community Radio, Martina Flaherty show there. They play some great music, but there's not enough stations doing that. Only, you know, the non-profit stations are doing it, but the commercial ones are not, and they should be doing it more. A hundred percent. And I really like that idea as well of regionality, you know, that if you have Galway Bay FM or Radio Kerry, that they would really bring it down to that local thing. I mean, that's such a gorgeous thing about Ireland and its regions and its regionalities, how everything has a different, slightly different flavor. And if you're down in Kerry, it's a specific thing. And up around here, there's such an absolute wealth of amazing songwriters and also the traditional thing. And, you know, like, and then if you go into the cities, it's kind of more, there's more urban music and that, and you know, that's a, that regionality is something that should be really celebrated and championed by local stations. But we're a ways off that, I think. And you could talk about it forever. You know, that's the thing. So, you could. <laughs> so, so, so let's let's go back again a bit. And so, when you started like playing, so w when did you do your first gig? I died in the drop bug. I'd say my first paid gig. I was still at school, like I was fifteen, maybe just in and around third year in school. And I, I Tony'd asked me in. Tony Small had asked me, and he'd be playing at the drop bug and Dingle. And he'd ask me in to come and sing. And I'd just come in and sing a couple of songs. I didn't have enough songs at that point to carry a full gig like. But by the time I was 
18, I suppose, then I would have had, you know, three hours of songs to, to, to entertain a crowd in the pub, like at home. Um, so I started doing that then and um, I haven't really stopped since. But I, re I really miss that. Like I haven't been gigging in pubs for a long time now since I moved to Belfast, really. Um, <clears throat> so about eight or eight years. Um, and I really miss that for the repertoire. Like in one way, singing to rooms full of tourists gets really jading and it's a bit it can be tough at times. But in another way, your repertoire, you're constantly just to even keep yourself entertained you're constantly learning new songs and learning new songs and I notice myself like a bit rusty in that department since I don't do it yeah yeah you have to sharpen the axe again yes yeah. <laughs> yeah. especially since COVID now as well because of yeah for co of course yeah and so you know for you at that time then like besides what you were singing and your repertoire what was what kind of music was influencing you like were you listening to to pop traditional music was it a bit of everything a bit of everything i got really into like in and around the 90s i got really into massive attack and portis head and tricky and <clears throat> a lot of that kind of thing and then when i moved to australia i started i was partying a lot and going out a lot and stuff so i, I really loved funk and soul and disco and I love that. I still do to this day. Love nothing more than being up to my ears in sequence. Um, and and then also the traditional and the folky stuff along the way. Um, and then as I kind of got a little bit older, I got a little bit more into world music and just kind of listening to different kind of indigenous things. But what I really love myself personally is is the kind of crossover point. I mean, I've never made a deliberate kind of attempt to do fusion music or anything like that. I just think that all the music that I've liked and listened to just kind of comes out anyway. You know, um, I mean, there. I suppose there is a kind of a trad fusion-y movement and stuff. But I actually don't really, because I know most of the people, because it's such a small scene to play that, I think they're just people who are expressing their influences rather than it being a kind of a, I'm going to, you know, make this traditional music sound more commercial or whatever. I think it's it's less um, deliberate than that. Yeah, and it's hard because, you know, the thing about music sometimes is the whole label thing and, you know, they say, oh, you're a traditional singer. And then, you know, as you said, if you wanted to make music that was kind of like Massive Attack or Tricky, that kind of ambient crossover music, you know, the thing is, there should be no limitations. But sometimes there is because sometimes the limitation is in the listener, but also yeah. sometimes it's in people you work with or, you know, record labels, this kind of a thing, because they're kind of going, you want to do what, <laughs> you know? You want to make a black metal album with traditional Irish singing. You can't do it. But I can do whatever I like, you know. Yeah, I hear it like absolutely. And 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 it can be just internal as well, you know, how you struggle with. Because there's a certain amount of like, you know, if you play traditional music or and, and if you stick kind of quite rigidly to that and you're good at that, then there's a lot, there's work for it. You know, there's opportunities and work for that very clearly defined thing. But once you kind of move slightly, people kind of assume that if you move slightly outside of it, that you make it more palatable for people who are not into the kind of pure trad thing. But it's my experience of it is it's the opposite, that the pure trad thing is a niche that has quite a big audience. But the stuff on the fringes of it is less definable. And people who really like trad, not sure if they like that. People who like ambient or more poppy or folky or, or whatever way 
they're not sure that they like the traditional element of it. So it's, that's a kind of a bit of a no man's land. And I think in modern folk movements, which feels a bit like the modern folk movement that at the moment that's very organic and a lot of it is coming from rough trade and kind of that thing that almost feels like 60s 70s kind of folk revival stuff to me you know um and that has an audience but i think the other kind of peripheral stuff is still and it's still kind of a bit no man's land and i find myself sometimes in that no man's land and and obviously because your main weapon is your voice do you do you did you ever have conflicts where you kind of felt, you know, because you were listening to Massive Attack and Tori Amos and that kind of stuff, maybe that style. Did you ever feel like, I don't know if I want to be this or I want to be that. Did you ever have like a crossroad where you wanted to go one way or the other? Yeah, definitely. When I was younger, like when I was kind of I went to Closter Stefan Naifa below in Cork, which is a music kind of like Dublin School of Rock kind of vibe. And I was in like, I suppose what you'd call indie bands, like, you know, did a bit of that kind of thing. Um, and I liked it and I still do to an extent, like I sing with different people and, you know, we've a Leonard Cohen thing here locally going and I still kind of branch out and, you know, I'm a bit of jack of all trades in that respect, but my love, my, my, what really interests me is kind of the old songs and that, that always pulls me back. The material all the time just always pulls me back. And that sense of being rooted in something bigger than yourself. You yes. Know? Yes. And I, I think as well, what happens is that, you know, as people in, in general, as we get older, we kind of like to discover more about our past and our parents past and grandparents. Mm. So you can get more yeah. drawn into that world of songs and older songs as opposed to song. Because when you listen to songs from the 90s, that was your time. But then as you get yeah. older, you're like, I want to hear songs from my grandmother's time. I want to hear songs from my yeah. mother's time that I was I wasn't around for. Yeah, exactly. And and, you know, you, you get that real indication that, you know, not a lot changes for people, really. <laughs> I mean, socioeconomics and politics and those kind of things have shaped things massively. But in terms of the inner workings of the heart, mind and soul, like that all that all pretty much ticks along as it does. And we all go through the same shit like (laughs) yes exactly and i always think you know i always remember you know when you were younger and you were in the car with your parents and they'd have the cassette deck or whatever and you know in the car and you know you'd be like oh country music and irish country music and these radio stations and i used to always you know when i look back now and i think as we go on in generations like it's not nowadays you'll have grandparents who are listening to heavy rock still in their 70s and you'll have you know and listening to techno and everything so it's funny because people mellow with age but you know if you're a fan of a one style of music you'll always be a fan but we use i used to think as a child oh my parents kind of grew too mellow you know they they yeah. kind of adapt there's music for 60 year olds and music for 20 year olds yeah but nowadays that's changing a lot because you could get into a car with a 60 year old and hear them playing stuff that you think oh this is very modern or for young people yeah no it's but I, that is really true actually and i think like the whole movement in terms of vintage like even for clothes or you know those kinds of things that people like kind of are drawn to old things and to just you know like everybody you know every everybody does look back 
an awful lot more and I know what you mean and I suppose the accessibility of music as well you know before we had to go out and buy the CD or buy the tape or whatever it was and now it's just playlists and you know so people are exposed to more stuff and it's definitely not yeah less age specific yes. for sure so so let, let's talk like obviously a bit about the whole songwriting process for you because you know obviously when, when you set about to do your your debut album Red Color Sun you know, how did you approach that? Did you say, I'm going to write some songs or I'm going to, you know, connect with people to write songs? How was the process? I didn't really do it for Red Color Sun. And I don't like, I write songs occasionally collaboratively with people, but I'm just not one of those people that that's not my way of communicating what I feel. It's just not like, and I don't feel in any way restricted by it or anything. Um, but yeah I just don't it doesn't I like I work I've been working quite a bit of recent years with um with a collective called Pharaoh and it's Tola Custy and Alan Doherty and we write stuff together and I have a hand in that but I don't really ever sit down and go this is on my mind and now I have to put pen to paper and write and do it that way I just don't I just always reach back into the into the vault of old songs and say it say it that way you know it's just something I've always done and it's I find it to be that solidarity of expression to be far more potent for me personally than whatever I have to say about how I feel yes, you know yes. I, I and also I think that as somebody who is I don't know how to word this now without sounding like an asshole but um as somebody who is a vocalist you know like the sound of my voice and the texture of my voice and the way I use it and that kind of thing is where most of the expression is for me is the act of singing more so than <clears throat> the pre the you know the decisions before it or the writing of a song or whatever it's the moment the time in that three and a half four sometimes let's face it seven or eight minutes um yeah but 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 i i think you're right in that sense because sometimes they're like you know the songwriting and singing are they work together in tandem but sometimes you can have the best songs written by somebody else and sang by somebody else yeah so you know you you a lot of the time what you have is if somebody does sing their own song maybe their voice isn't the most amazing voice but because the song is so strong, it yeah. carries their voice. Yeah, totally. And, then, and, the, and, and on the other hand, then you have um, a situation where, you know, the person who doesn't write the song but sings it can do a far greater job because they, they come at it from a different angle and they obviously have a better instrument, their voice, than the other person maybe. And you look at some people who have that whole kind of <clears throat> package in one. If you look at people like Sinead O'Connor, you know, she... She writes incredible songs, but she's also like the best interpretive singer around, you know, like the way she interprets songs. She totally like, you know, so there's, you know, there's a million ways to do it, I guess. But I've just never had the burn in me to to just take at songwriting. It's just I'm, I kind of I think I just come from that traditional background and I feel very privileged and there's a lot to do you know in that role like there's a lot of stuff to kind of learn and there's a lot to think about and there's a lot to kind of it's so vast like that you could spend your whole life and I look at people that I know that are traditional singers people like Ailish Kennedy and a lot of them most of them from West Kerry like um and it's a life's work really to to just delve in and you're still only kind of 
cover and a small bit of it. If you write a song, you know how you want it to go. So half of the learning is done, you know, because the melody's in your head. You know, like I find sometimes I'm like going to bed and I'm about to fall asleep and an idea comes into my head and I'm like, oh, I need to go to sleep. And I'm thinking, but that, that's not, that melody won't be there in the morning. Yeah. So I think this inbuilt melody, if you're going to be the singer of that song, it's already there. So you have less work to do. But if you have to interpret somebody else's song, you have to you have to do more work and more preparation and you have to think about it a lot more. So it's a job in itself, isn't it? Yeah, it is a job in itself. And one that I really, really love, like I love love all that crack. It just keeps me up at night too, you know. <laughs> with your with your own solo albums, you know, Red Colour Sun, Hush, Gossamer. How do you feel they have changed over, you know, over those like 10, 15 years? How do you feel that the sound has changed on them? Um, I think I've changed as a person. I think, you know, some singers kind of come out of the traps, you know, cooked, you know, like evolved and that they're, that's how they sound forever. And I just was never that person. And I think I've improved and I think I've grown into my voice um, over 20 years, probably. And I'm actually in a better place with my own singing now than I've ever been. Um, I hope that continues, but um, I think I'm more present in it and I give less fucks, to be honest, about all the stuff that goes along with it. I, and that's really serious. Like, that's so liberating. Like, like I really, really don't care, um, you know, about the industry. I'm just a bit jaded from all of that. So the, the just bringing it back to the singing is kind of, and I suppose in a way, COVID has allowed that too in this year to kind of really reevaluate stuff, all the driving and flying and pulling and dragging that everybody was doing. And now you're just like, okay, when I want to go back to this, like I think I might do it a bit more on my own terms, care less about um, the structures that kind of surround us, you know, like the agents and the this and the that and what will they want and what will audience want and what makes a good gig and blah, blah, blah. And just really follow the art and follow the voice and just see where that kind of brings me. You, you brought up a very interesting point there because, you know, artists nowadays and forever, they've always had to think of this, but, you know, you, you meet some assholes along the way, lots of them, and you meet some assholes in the business who have no talent. And the thing about it is, uh, as you said, you get pretty jaded. And, you know, for some people, they say, I'm going to avoid that. But maybe then you're not in the network and you're not meeting people and your career isn't going anywhere. How how have you... Yeah, damned if you do, damned if you exactly, don't. Yeah. How, how have you yeah. dealt with that over the years? Like, are you a bit are you a bit dubious when you meet new people in the industry and kind of like, I ha it'll take me a while to figure it out or do you know straight away? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think probably a bit of both. Like, I have... Like it, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind, but that in such an unregulated industry, I don't know if you can even call it an industry in Ireland. I mean, like we don't have at the moment really or even a record label, you know, that's putting stuff out. You know, there's Ruby works and things, but like in terms of, you know, people, you know, that they do very little. They're, they have very few artists, you know, so I don't know if you can even really call it um an industry like, but. I'm very cautious. I've heard a lot. I've had a lot of bullshit conversations with people over the years. But I think that the fact that I've kind of stuck it out this long, I have a network of people around me that I work with all the time. And 
uh, I keep meeting very exciting and new people. Like recently, I met this um, gorgeous and amazing um, woman, Kira O'Leary Fitzpatrick. She manages John Spillane and she just released his album with him. She's his manager and she just did the release of that album and just did such a fantastic job. She's vibrant and young and fresh and enthusiastic and bright and she's just set up her own company so you know you do meet people along the way and I think in a lot of ways you know the the old music mogul dinosaurs that ran the agencies and ran the labels like they're gone like good riddance and in in their place is coming kind of a, a crop of people who do lots of things and they have lots of they can edit videos and they can do all these things so there is like really exciting um people around and you know new people to meet but yeah you'd be you'd be cautious like wouldn't you because everybody's been burnt so many times i I recently saw i saw a guy on linkedin you know and and he was like he was like an a and r guy but freelance and he was looking for songs for artists for warner and universals and different things but he never really spoke about his deal, you know, like what he wanted. <laughs> yeah. So then one day I saw one of his posts and he was looking for demos and he said, and my deal would be 10% of the, the, the whatever the deal was and 10% of the publishing. And I was thinking, well, hold on a second now, because I know some people in, in Sony Music in Spain. I, I met a few people and, you know, I was talking to them and they said a lot of the deals now are 60-40 for the record company, okay, in favor of the mm-hmm. record company. So you imagine if you're getting 40%, but then this A&R freelance guy wants 10% of the publishing, you're coming out with 20%. It's just ridiculous. Have your own song. Bananas, isn't it? Have your own song. It's just madness. So so it's they, there are still the sharks out there and the, there are the people saying, oh, I can introduce you to this person. But I think nowadays artists don't want to be introduced to these a or these labels because the labels can't do that much for you. The, the only thing they're good at is marketing. They can't. And before, yeah, they, they used to be able to like throw a cash. Like I've had advances and I was signed to Sony at one point with Lumiere and, you know, went over to Nashville and did not move there and different things over the years. And there used to be a few quid, you know, like where you'd go. But like I've done a Kickstarter, you can kind of do that now. You know, you can get capital from other ways. And unless you're signing like with a label, you know, who have a big profile and have maybe a cult following, there's a few of those around the place and the services and the PR and the kudos and the attention that it brings is amazing. You know, yeah, it's difficult. But, you know, I suppose the thing is now that you have a lot of independent artists releasing independently and, you know, hoping for the best and and not having a budget for marketing and all these other things. Uh, but Kickstarter and these are great things. But, you know, on the, the worst part is that we as artists, we have to try and get money to make the albums. But then it's very hard to make money from them unless you're touring. Really, like that's that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? And the stream revenue is so shite. And yeah, it's hard. Like, I mean, God knows why we persevere and still do what we do, because it is hard. But I guess ultimately, I think from my perspective, I'm so institutionalized now to being my own boss, doing living the way that I live and saying what I say and having such freedom to be a person in the world, I think is the greatest thing. And I, I don't know how I could ever 
not do that. Like, I, I don't know who the fuck would employ me, you know, because I have no skills. And, you know, so there's a bit of that, you know, that you're like, there are definitely rewards. And I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be financially recompensed for all the work that we do. And it's absolutely scandalous. And I think people who have regular jobs are often quite shocked to hear how little we earn and to hear how little, you know, I mean, Mary Cochran was on the radio telling um, Ray Darcy there recently that she earns roughly 30 grand a year. And this is to a man who earns like 450 grand a year. And he was just like flabbergasted that, I mean, his car is, you know what I mean? You have artists nowadays coming out, you know, and they're saying, uh, oh, you know, I, like I saw recently there where Paul Weller said he had 3 million streams for one of his songs or one of his albums and he only, he got like 10 grand which is is a nice chunk of change for a lot of people but for him who's a huge artist it's nothing so the the point is you kind of have to think to yourself well hold on if, if yeah. 3 million is only 10 grand you'd have to get like billions and billions and billions to try and become a multi or millionaire so yeah. it's really difficult i mean for small artists yeah. money and you know nowadays i think I, I even like I was thinking to myself, if I ever try and release more music, I think I want to stay away from Spotify because it, even though it's like you said, you, you, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But I think what artists are starting to, to realize, it's a waste of time, Spotify now. I know it gets your music out there, but there's no money to be made from it. There's, you know, like I was talking to somebody about that recently. I mean, as an idea, the thing about Spotify is legis- legislatively, and it's a really hard word to say, it's actually an easy fix. Like we need to legislate for people to be paid properly for their intellectual property and to stop, you know, drip or feeding all, funneling all this money back to the major record labels and et cetera. So the, the concept works. The concept of Spotify is a great concept. It's just that it doesn't pay people fairly. So like if that element of it was legislated for and addressed in each of the territories and, you know, you know, like, I mean, I I, I just think and um, we've, we've learned this through the pandemic as well. Like there's people who have thought about the arts as an industry now because we're all on the PP. Um, who had never considered it before, who thought of us all along as kind of glorified hobby people and sure, aren't they lucky to be doing what they do because they love it? True, yes. But the fact that it's, is it fair? Also, no, it's not. And that's also true. So I think people and even the government, like I work with an organization called Fair Play, which is it's gender equality in traditional and folk music. And we talk to Catherine, Minister Catherine Martin a lot and over and back with difficult different political parties at the moment. So they're looking at things like bringing in basic universal income for artists. So I think there's finally um, a bit of a recognition that we are a workforce and that we perform, we do services and we work for our money. And I think that for a country that has celebrated its arts for such a long time and traded off it, that's a relatively new concept, like for a lot of people. It's shocking. It's shocking. It's really shocking that a country that has so many saints and scholars and artists is only now thinking about rewarding those artists for all the years of work they've done and for giving them the minimum, you know, what they deserve. And that's really shocking because it, it always goes back to the thing, wasn't it, that, oh, it's not a real job. But at the same time, 
when you don't have it. And if we didn't have music and art and film through this COVID, we'd be fucked, all of us. Absolutely. And and people need to start joining the dots between the Netflix and the drama group and the, you know, like, and all of that, like joining all those dots. And I mean, I think particularly for artists, like it's hard for all arts workers, um, but like, for instance, recently I've been asked to do a couple of things that have come online from the live performance scheme, you know, the government scheme. And people are asking that artists take a reduced fee for these schemes. And like, I'm like, I'm wondering, like, are they asking sound engineers and light and camera people and th- those same questions? It's like if you go up, like, no disrespect to Michael D, he's a great man. But if you were asked to go up and play in Oris Newthron, which I have done a couple of times, they pay you about 150 quid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you have it spent in diesel on the way up in the car, really, by the time you do like it's, and you know, it's like I can't eat the honor or privilege or feed my daughter. No, no, you know, no, it so, won't, my, Michael D's picture on the wall won't feed your child. No, like, no. And it is great. And it is an honor. But, but uh, you know, once is enough. Like, <laughs> but, but, you know, you mentioned there the Netflix and this is what's crazy. People are prepared to pay 10, 12, 15 euros a month for Netflix to see all their movies but they still want Spotify free. And I think, like, if you look at Apple's model, they pay more than Spotify and everything. But Apple just say, if you want to listen to music on our platform, you pay a subscription, right? Now, the problem is Spotify are just luring people in. It's like a bait, you know? Give it to them free and then hope they subscribe. But what they're effectively doing by giving everything away free is killing the artist's work, and they're not honoring it. And, like... You know well there, if you just said there you did the Kickstarter and people funded it. So people will pay if they value something. But if you give people something for nothing, they never value it. They never value it. And I've had this issue loads like I had it with a festival here in Ireland recently enough. And they were doing a music trail. And it's a really well-known festival. And they were doing a music trail. And I got this email to say, will you come and bring the band and do the music trail? It was actually in, in Dingle. And they were saying we can put you up in this venue. And I, they were mentioned one of the pubs and the person did, that I was dealing with didn't know I was from Dingle. And I was like, well, that is very far from a venue. And um, I, you know, but they, they, so there's, we have no fee is basically what they were saying to me. And I was just like, but the gigs are free. And I'm like, why are you doing a whole music festival of free gigs? How is anybody going to get paid and who values it and what value is put on it? Like it's, the devaluation of our work is, I mean, it's it's economically gruesome, but it's also kind of morally and spiritually, it's an assault as well, you know. Probably the responsor is involved, so someone is getting paid. Oh, someone is getting paid, and I would imagine the person sending me the email is getting paid for sure. You know, and then like even when you look at the funding bodies like the Arts Council and different people like that, like there is a kind of a almost like a class disconnect there. You know, when you have people who are on very reasonable salaries, um, you know, in charge of the systems and mechanisms that give out money to artists who aren't and how little they understand the real precariousness of the work and what the funding, how you should be able to access the funding and what the funding should be given for and what artists need versus what, you know, the establishment thinks they need or, you know. It's... Yes, yes, yes. And and like I've heard the argument from Spotify that they couldn't run the model if they had to pay artists more. But the thing is, if if I make a cake for your cafe, you have to pay me and no, you have to make, charge the people enough to pay me. And this is the thing. 
if Spotify can't pay the artist, they need to charge the customer more. But they're just saying, well, we're not prepared to do that because we lose customers. I mean, it's easy to have, you know, a billion subscribers if it's free. It's very easy to do that. The question is, if you if you charge them 10 euros a month or whatever it is, then you see, will people go to you or Apple or Tidal or whatever? And I think that's what has to change. The legislation has to say to those kind of, you know, big streaming services, well, listen, you, it, that's your problem whether you charge or not, but you have to pay the artists what they're worth. Yeah. But you have to pay the artists, yeah. It's the only way, isn't it? It's the only way. So listen, I'm not going to keep you for too much longer, Pauline. I just want to ask you, you know, just about, like, obviously, collaborations. You've recently worked with John, an amazing album. And, I mean, you sound amazing on it. John sounds amazing. And John was on my show a few weeks ago, and, and he played some of the songs, and they're fabulous. And, and he was talking me through some of the recording procedures you had and the processes. For you, when you're doing work with, you know, artists, as you said, Sharon Shannon, you know, I know you did a song with Belinda Carlisle, 2007 and different stuff. How do you approach that? Do you do you come from a different place than when you're doing stuff solo? Yeah, definitely. I love singing harmonies. They It just harmony singing kind of just interests me. It's a process and it's a, an activity that I really enjoy. So I think like it's it's a very it's you know session work like can you come and sing harmonies and do back and vocals on this music I of somebody that I don't really know but I think I can add something to the music I do a lot of that and I'm, I'm it's work and I'm indifferent towards it and I enjoy the process but I may never hear the music or listen to it again but then if there's like kind of more collaborative stuff like I'm a huge John Spillane fan I absolutely love his songwriting we're great old pals and that's like getting a door into somebody else's world and somebody's creativity where you just really enjoy it but you've none of the responsibility for it like that's a dream really and I love that like that's you just go, you go in and get to have fun just go in and get to have fun and and let watch them do their thing and then do your thing and you know try and augment it and enhance it as best you can and you know that's a completely thoroughly enjoyable process and I, I love that as much as putting my own stuff out there possibly even more actually but you know you can't always be always doing that but I do I do love that yeah I like one one song that dearest dear with with my dearest dear with um Lumiere you know with Eilish Kennedy that's a fabulous song so you know when when you sat when you did that with Lumiere is that still going with Lumiere or is it kind of just something that comes up every so often? It is in theory. Like we, I had Kitty in 2016, my daughter, and I kind of didn't do a whole pile actually after that. I kind of took a couple of years off. I released a solo album when I was pregnant and um, uh, just before actually. And then I did the tour just before it. And Elish and I, it's fully our intention uh, to get together and to do something again. And nothing is dissolved. Like the website is still there and all of that. But then the baby happened and then COVID happened. And so we will absolutely um, get around to doing it again in the future. I love that. And I love singing with her and uh, hanging with her and going for glasses of white wine with her. And, you know. Very nice. That's lovely. It's like a sisterhood, you know? Yeah, it really is very much. Yeah, I want to talk in a minute about the obviously working with the Whileaways and, you know, your neighbors around there. But before that, I one thing that I was really interested in and it was amazing sound was the, the I, I hope I pronounced this correct. The, the Motu Ilan, the, 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 the Maori and the collaboration. Tell us a little about that. 
<laughs> something else, isn't it? That came up through um Jerry Paul, who um is a guitar player and musician, uh, originally Irish, and then him and his family, when he was a small child, moved out to Wellington. So he's Kiwi Irish, and he lived over here. He was in Grada with Nicola Joyce, and I gigged with him and played music with him. We're friends 20 years now, I suppose, at this point. And he'd moved back to New Zealand, and he was just always saying that Tereo Maori, there's so, so many commonalities between um, Indigenous uh, New Zealand and Ireland in the sense that they're a colonised country. They have a minority language in their own country of origin. Um, and so there's lots of commonalities and even kind of culturally and socially Maori people and Irish people are like, as we discovered, have are so close, like just the sense of humor and the crack and all of that. Um, and also like the deep uh, tentacles, I suppose, of mythology and uh, mysticism and parables and you know just all of that that kind of element of things there's a lot really that we have um that's similar so jerry had envisaged this collaborative fusion thing and so off we went over to new zealand and i think we've done three trips over there and it does work amazingly well and i think that's a particularly um i think the particular characters involved as well as the two musics um they, they meld very well and it was just the, the particular musicians in question as well yes and you know what what i noticed was listening to the the music was you know you hear your voice and you hear the, like the female voice whatever and then you hear the male voices coming in and you're kind of like are they like irish voices and then you hear the maori voices so it kind of evolves like step by step through the lyrics and everything it really changes yeah it does and like it was interesting like to sing with the so the guys all speak to Ray O'Mahri you know and like what are they like what are, there's no S there's oh god it's a while now since I did but like there's like consonant sounds that they don't have that that are like 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 there's no S is it S I think it is S when you're when you have the lyrics or whatever let's say if you're doing an Irish song do they take the Irish words and uh, translate them into Maori or they sing the Irish ones? Both, yeah. And then we'd learn some of theirs and they learn some of ours. And But very, very, it's more we sing each other's rather than translate. I mean, there's a bit of it goes on, um, but it's it's mostly shared out in, in the other way. Wow, really interesting though. It's a really interesting project. And let's talk uh, a bit about obviously working with the Whileaways and the whole bird on a wire and stuff. Um, you know, obviously, and the Wailuas are a great band and some beautiful harmonies and, you know, you singing with them, it worked wonderfully together. So, you know, how did that kind of collaboration come about? I got asked by uh, the, um, a friend of mine, they actually own the INEC in Killarney, the Irish National Entertainment Centre and the Glen Eagle Hotel. And uh, we know them years and uh, Patrick O'Donoghue and his wife Eileen were married for 25 years and Eileen and I had always discussed our love of Leonard Cohen and we'd always be talking about this song and that song and Patrick rang me and said will I put a band together to celebrate to sing to gift her as a surprise and to do an hour of Leonard Cohen songs so I said Jesus no bother so no better people to do all the harmonies than, and then we got all the local musicians Dave Clancy and Will Merrigan and we just spent a month 
back in our house here in Hedford, just putting together a Leonard Cohen set. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And um, the phone just started ringing and more people wanted it and people heard about it. And then people came to the gigs and then it's just a kind of a runaway success, really. It's a funny thing. It's just kind of taken on a life of its own and we're just kind of tagging along behind. Yeah, but I mean, it's really good. And, you know, some some amazing voices and, and great musicians, you know, Dave Clancy and all those, Will Murrigan's brilliant. Um, so I, I think obviously when the tour and does come back, you'll have great success with that and people will want to hear more, won't they? They will. And I think like we're not trying to float a new idea or anything. I mean, these are age old, tested, enduring songs that people love to listen to. So I think, you know, that it's it's an easy sell in that sense as well when we when we do come back. What what's your favorite song to do, Leonard Cohen song? Uh, what's my favorite song to do? Oh, I have a few for different famous blue raincoat, I think probably. Yeah, he, he was an amazing artist. I mean, it's nice, you know, as well. Obviously, as you said, for different generations, you know, every five, ten years for people to come along and look back and say, Oh, look at that music was amazing and let's, you know, pay its due diligence, yeah. you know, it's 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 amazing. You know? Yeah, yeah. So listen, Pauline, I want to thank you very much. And you know, the last thing I want to ask you really is, you know, what 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 are you hoping and uh, hoping to achieve in the next? I won't say year. I'll say year or two because we don't know. Obviously, yeah. What what's your plans? Like, are you going to work on another? Well, you're working on this album at the moment. When was that? When do you hope to release that one? I hope to release that in kind of November time. So that's what I hope, and I hope to have a successful run, and uh, I hope to generate some discussion and some introspection around the agency of women in traditional song and to have feminist conversations uh, across a broad spectrum of mediums um, and I hope that it that it's a talking point and that's great and you know it's something in the future I'd love to have yourself and some other people on the podcast to talk about those things together it'd be amazing because mm. uh, like Anytime. I've had some people on with similar kind of ideas and everything. So it would be really nice to, you know, just converge those ideas and, and show people sure. the way things are moving now. That would be great. And thank you for that invitation and opportunity. I accept. <laughs> Brilliant. So listen, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, you've taken the time to talk to us. I've been You've been on my radar for a while, so I've been thinking, okay, I have to get Polly in on the show. Oh, great. And thanks so much for inviting me. Um, I've really enjoyed the chat, actually. It's been really, really enjoyable. Brilliant. That's really good. And um, look, best of luck with everything in the future and best of luck finishing your new album. And we'll plug it when it comes out. Just drop us a line and we'll we'll give it a blast and we'll show people what it's about. Brilliant. And thanks, Simon. Thank you. Maybe maybe you'll come on again sometime and sing for us in the future. But for sure. best of luck with everything. and. Thanks so much and take care. So Pauline Scanlon, everybody. Cool. Thanks, Ivan. Bye. Okay. Thank you very much, Pauline. That was a really interesting conversation and uh, we wish you the best in the future. And thank you for coming on the show and giving us your opinion on how everything is in the Irish music industry and your experience of the music industry in general. So thank you once again. Okay. Next week's guest is Kieran O'Reilly. Kieran O'Reilly is an actor, musician and producer. Kieran is a real-life police detective who worked for many years as an undercover drugs operative. He is known for his role in the Emmy award-winning television series Vikings as Whitehair. Kieran arrived onto the acting scene in 2013 with a critically acclaimed performance in Ireland's television crime drama Love Hate as Detective Garda Kieran Madden.
and in 2016 was nominated for the Discovery Award at the Dublin International Film Festival. He is also the singer-songwriter of the Irish alternative band Hail the Ghost. Okay, so we look forward to that chat with Kieran, and we hope you join us, and thank you very much for listening to today's episode, and we look forward to seeing you in the future, guys. So look after yourself, take care of everyone you love, and see you next time. Take care.